The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And now for our scripture reader today, we have Abby Huben. Hey guys, so our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Abby Huben, for reading that for us this morning. Love the Norman Rockwell books in the frame there. Couldn't take my eyes off of those. Hey, um, we are in this, we started this series, uh, this Advent series, actually two weeks ago, uh, before Advent proper, with two sermons that were kind of prescripts for the Advent season. And we're going to be, we're, we're looking at passages in Isaiah during this series, and uh, today's passage actually dovetails in uh, from Isaiah 11 into what we were reading last week uh, in Isaiah 6. And I'm excited for where we're going uh, in this sermon because it's profoundly encouraging. I'm, I'm always encouraged by um, displays of the strength of Jesus. I think a lot of times the image of Jesus that is put forth is, is a very soft-spoken, um, delicate person who um, just tried to encourage one an- people to be nice to one another, you know? And there are, there are moments, I, I, I'll date myself a little in referring to this movie, but there's a moment in the movie The Matrix, if you've ever seen that. Um, it's about a man who is told that he's the one uh, whatever that means, he doesn't really know, um, but he discovers that he is the one who is going to free, basically, he's going to free the world, and, and, he, and he realizes that he has control over the world that he's living in, and there's a moment when a bad guy shoots at him, and he stops the bullets in midair, and he's in a hallway, and he goes, and he flexes like this, and the walls go, remember that moment? gets me every time. There are moments in the gospel where where Jesus does that, where he plants his feet and commands the world and people 
do not know what to do in those moments. I love superhero movies. Uh, I know I just referred to a movie, but let's just keep going. I love superhero movies. And one of the things, I, I keep thinking about like, why do I like these as much as I do? Um, one of the things that I love, Batman is my favorite um, by far, even though the debate is out as whether he's a superhero or not. Um, but he, but he's, he's my favorite superhero. But one of the things that I love about the stories of, of superheroes is that element of the secret identity where when they're in their uh, kind of normal person identity, nobody knows that they have this other thing that they're able to do, this other thing that they're capable of. When people see Peter Parker, for example, they, just, they see a regular kid navigating regular teenage stuff, but he has, this, he has this secret that he can't let anybody know, but the time may actually come when he, in fact, needs to save the entire city, right? And he does. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, many people just, people just didn't know who he really was. They didn't connect the dots. People had different ideas about who he might be, but every one of those ideas fell short of the, the full truth. And the truth was they couldn't handle the truth. They couldn't handle, that's a third movie reference. What am I doing? I'm in a zone right now. Um, no, it, it was a third, third movie reference. Uh, they, 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 wouldn't, they couldn't handle knowing the full truth of who he was. Even when he tried to tell them, they, and he was as plain as he could be about it, they wouldn't accept it at face value. He must mean something else. Today's passage gives us part of the picture of the superhero Jesus. It gives us a part of that picture, a part of the, the identity of Jesus that was lost on the people that he rubbed shoulders with during his earthly ministry. And so what I want to do in our passage is I want to do basically three things. Uh, I want to unpack the text from Isaiah, which I'm going to do pretty quickly, uh, and then what I want to do is I want to look at it through a superhero secret identity passage about Jesus in the Gospel of John. And then what we're going to do is we're going to put those two things together and look at Christmas then through the lens of Easter. So that's, that's where we're going. So we're going to unpack the text, look at a part in John's Gospel, and then we're going to make a connection uh, between Easter and Christmas. So today's passage that we just read, uh, that Abby read for us, is Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 9. And this passage is actually calling back to some texts that we read in Isaiah 6, where after the land of Judah is ravaged, is laid waste, the Lord tells the prophet, life is going to remain. It's going to be there in the stump. And a shoot is going to come up through the ruins and life is going to take over where only ruin and devastation existed. And it's going to erase the present trouble that Judah is experiencing. And so what this text does is it breaks down into two key ideas or points. And the first is in verses one to five, who is Jesus? And the second, what did Jesus come to do? Verses six to eight. So quickly, the first, who Jesus is. Isaiah says that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. 
That's a significant thing using the name Jesse because what is Jesse a reference to? Jesse is a reference to the father of the king, right? Jesse is King David's father. It would be hard to overstate the significance of King David in the minds and in the memories and in the romance of the nation of Israel. David was their King Arthur and he ruled over Israel during their Camelot era. It was, it was, when they think of the Messiah and the Messiah's coming, they think he's going to be just like David, only he's just going to be more David than David was. That's kind of their point of reference for who he's going to be. And so Isaiah is saying, there's life, there's a shoot that's going to come up from the stump of Jesse, meaning that the living one who will rise up to restore order and peace is going to come from the line of the kings, and he's going to be the true and better king David. And then this reference to the descendant of Jesse, King David, is followed by a sevenfold description of divine power. You got to love prophecy, right? A sevenfold description of his divine power. And it begins with the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and the fear of the Lord is going to rest on him. And it's followed by wisdom and understanding and delight in the truth. And it concludes with his perfect righteousness. So what a picture we're given of who Jesus is. It's this. That our, it's a, it's a picture that our royal, anointed, and appointed king is robed in wisdom and understanding and knowledge, delight in truth, and perfect righteousness. So that's the picture of who he is. Our royal, anointed, appointed king robed in wisdom, understanding, knowledge, a delight in the truth, and a zeal for righteousness. This is who he is. So what did he come to do? Verses six through nine get into this. And it starts to tell us, you know, that the passage is about uh, the, the, uh, the wolf will lay down with the lamb. Uh, the, uh, the leopard is going to lay down with the young goat. The calf and the lion, they're going to hang out together. A little child can be in their presence and it'll be okay. In other words, old hostilities are going to be put to rest. Predator and prey will live together in peace to the degree that even a child would be safe in their presence. But then he goes on in verse 7 to say nature itself is going to be transformed in the process. This is what verse 7 says. The cow... And the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. In other words, uh, as the Old Testament scholar Alec Motyer said this, he said, the point made here is not simply togetherness. It's not just that the lion and the ox are going to be together, or that the wolf <clears throat> and the lamb are going to be together. It's that the identity of nature is going to shift. They're all going to eat the same food. Carnivores are going to become herbivores. <coughs> Death will be no more. So there won't even be danger. Think about that. That what he's coming to do is to bring a kind of a reconciliation and a peace where there won't even be a danger. And then verse 8 says, even the relationship, I don't know if you saw this as it went past, he says, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is significant, 
Because what he's saying is the relationship between humans and serpents, which was cursed in the Garden of Eden, is going to be restored. In other words, <clears throat> Jesus is going to lift the curse of the fall. Nothing short of that. So that's the picture. When we put these two together, <coughs> excuse me, when we put these two together, what we see is this. We see a restoration that changes nature. We see a restoration that lifts the curse of the fall and it comes by way of the wisdom and the understanding and the knowledge and the delight and the righteousness of the Lord through the ministry of this new and living king. That is quite a flex, isn't it? I mean, that's just, that's, we're gonna see restoration that changes nature, that lifts the curse of the fall, coming by way of the wisdom and the understanding and the knowledge and the delight and the righteousness of the Lord through the ministry of this new and living king. The identity of the one whose birth we anticipated Advent and celebrate at Christmas is this, a redeemer who comes in power and his mission is clear and his feet are planted. And there's no question in his mind about what he is here to do. So, I want to look at an example of this. I want to look at an example of Jesus as the coming king who brings this wisdom and understanding and righteousness and love of truth and plants his feet with a clear mission. And I want us to see a beautiful moment of this on display in John's gospel. It's John 19, verses 9 to 12. Uh, you can look it up if you want to, but I'll just tell you the story as well. But it's the story of when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate. He's on trial. He's been arrested in the Garden of Eden by the chief priests and the religious leaders. <clears throat> and they eventually get him in front of Pontius Pilate, who's the one who has the authority to actually carry out Roman law. He has the authority to carry out Roman justice. And I love how this passage of Jesus standing before Pilate illustrates a redeemer with his feet planted. A redeemer with an identity that the world around just doesn't seem to get, but he knows what he's doing and he is clear about his mission. Isaiah says that the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the living one who is rising from the ruins, the Messiah, the redeemer of the world will come with a singular focus to judge the world with equity and with righteousness and with severity while ushering in a level of peace that the world has ever known. How? How did he do that? Well, over in John 10, Jesus makes a statement. And it's a statement that is either true or it's false, but it can't be anything else. It's either true or it's false, and it's this. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus' death was either a martyr in the wrong place at the wrong time who got outsmarted by the people who wanted to arrest him and went into the mechanisms of justice and couldn't get out on the other side and that's why he was crucified or 
He means what he says here. No one takes my life from me, but I do lay it down of my own accord. As the child in Christmas, the child sent to lead us to redemption, as the righteous judge who is robed in the spirit of wisdom and the fear of God, Jesus intentionally and authoritatively gives his life for us to accomplish the restoration that is described here in Isaiah. Let's see it. Well, just before his crucifixion, Jesus stood trial before Pontius Pilate. And if you remember the account, one of the things that stands out in that passage is the curiosity of Pilate himself. He didn't want to do this. He didn't want to crucify Jesus. In fact, he didn't even want Jesus in the system. He, want, he, he knew that the charges against him were bogus. He wanted to release him, but he also feared displeasing the people that he governed. And so politics and the fear of man are why Pilate didn't free Jesus. But the reason why Pilate couldn't free Jesus was another matter. At many points along the way, during the last week of Jesus' life and during his trial, people urged him, say something, defend yourself, say something in order to make this tough situation that you're in better. But he didn't. Or when he would speak, it would only heighten the tension. Like during his triumphal entry, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they came to him and they said, you have to tell these people to stop calling you king because the Romans are going to find out about it and they're going to bring a world of trouble down on all of us. And what did Jesus say? Oh, sorry, my bad. He said, if they don't cry out and praise me, the stones and the trees will. There's a flex, right? Here... Pontius Pilate wants Jesus to just, for the love, answer the charges against him. And he says it as plainly as he can, like he's tipping his hand. He's a bad salesman because he just shows him what, he, what he's actually after. And he said this, don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? I'm giving you an opportunity of a lifetime here. If Jesus would just give Pilate something to work with, Pilate then could find a way to release him and they could get on with their lives. Didn't Jesus realize the opportunity that was being handed to him? But the question we have to ask is, is Pilate the one who is seeing things for what they are? Or is Jesus? This silent Christ standing in front of the prefect of Judea, when Pilate says to him, don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? He levels his gaze at Pilate and what does he say? He says, you would have no power if it wasn't given to you from above. That is strong. Because in that moment, Jesus is saying, Pilate, you think you have the power to free me or to crucify me, but all the power that you have is actually power I gave you. 
You don't have any power except for what is given to you. In fact, the Greek word that Jesus uses for power literally means legitimate authority. (laughs) He He says, you have no legitimate authority over me except for what is given to you. It's an incredible statement to make. He's brought in as a prisoner and he quickly assumes a posture of authority in Pilate's own room. And he tells Pilate, things are not as you see them. When Pilate claims to have power to release or crucify Jesus, he's making a weighty doctrinal assertion. Does he really have the power to stop what is happening here in this moment? Does he even have a clue what is happening here in this moment? We're wading into deep theological waters with this. But Pilate is raising a point that we have to wrestle with, and Christmas is a great time to wrestle with it. Because we're asking the question, why do we celebrate Jesus' birth? Yeah, it appears if Jesus gave the right testimony, if he said the right words, Pilate could work with them and put an end to the kangaroo court, but there are no if-onlys. There's just what is. And while Pilate can imagine a host of possibilities of outcomes, there will only be one. Will that outcome reside with Pilate's will? Pilate's the prisoner in this story. He's the one that can't make a move without getting himself in trouble. Is there any outcome that ultimately resides with your will? An impatient Pilate is confounded beyond words as to why this man, who is inching closer to his own death every minute, won't take the opportunity to defend himself. Why won't you defend yourself? Here's the answer. The reason Jesus won't defend himself in this moment is because he is, in fact, utterly and perfectly defendable. He has done nothing wrong. But it isn't for his own transgression that he means to die. Has Jesus broken any laws? No. But have you? Have I? Oh, yes. We have all sinned against our Creator, and Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, and so Christ is standing before Pilate because he means to die. That's why he's there, not in order to satisfy the mob outside, but to take upon himself the sins of the world. Jesus means to drink the cup of the full measure of the wrath of God towards sin. This isn't Pilate's show. And so Jesus remains silent for reasons that are all his own. Reasons that are hidden from Pilate but are now revealed to us. What are the reasons that Jesus remains silent before Pilate? He remains silent for every secret sin, for every personal failing, for every broken heart, for every desperate ambition to prove our worth, for every confession of allegiance to another king, for all this he kept silent before his accusers. Pilate couldn't release Jesus because it wasn't Pilate's orders 
that would send Jesus to the cross. It was the Father's doing. Jesus' crucifixion was to satisfy the wrath of God, not the wrath of a mob outside. No one took his life from him. But he laid it down of his own accord. And why? To make possible the peace with God and with one another that is spoken of in our passage from Isaiah. That's why. That's why. You have to look at Christmas through the lens of Easter. You can't understand Easter unless you see it through the lens of Christmas. You can't make sense of Christmas without looking at it through the cross because we celebrate the birth of Jesus only in part for his ministry of words. We do treasure his teaching. We treasure his example. But he was born for a purpose greater than just his words and his example. He came to do something. He came to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves. He came to live the perfect life that we've all failed to live, which has set us at enmity with our maker. And he has came to die in our place, to take the wage of our sin upon himself. And he has come to defeat the power of death so that we can have life in his name and be restored forever. A curse lifted with the maker and lover of our soul. He came to destroy the stronghold of evil on our hearts and on our societies, giving us perfect peace in its place. Lasting and complete, perfect peace. This is the beauty of the gospel. And it's the reason why we celebrate the birth of Jesus is because of this sweeping transformation that he had come to accomplish through that life. Pilate had no idea. But we have hindsight. And so we have a clue. Ray Ortland wrote this about the beauty of the gospel and the reason for Jesus' birth. He said, the problem with this gospel is not that it is too small to deserve our faith. Its beauty and magnitude surpass our faith. But we have a reason to believe this audacious gospel. We saw the future glory in the resurrected Jesus on that Easter Sunday long ago. That is a knowable event in our past. And his immortal newness on that day was the future in advance on public display. I pray that the Lord would expand our wonder at the beauty and the necessity of what Christ has done for us. This king who rises from the ruins with perfect righteousness and wisdom and power and zeal for the truth and who transforms a world that is full of violence and deception and decay and restores everything to where there is peace, that he plants his feet with his mission clear. And I pray that as we think about that, and as we dwell on that, and as we pray about that, that our celebration then of Christmas would be marked by our worship of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, 
I thank you for the, the clarity and the resolve of the mission of Christ on our behalf. I thank you for the way that Jesus has accomplished something unimaginable to Isaiah's original hearers. It's no wonder when we read a passage like this why we would see in chapter six that they would be hearing but not understanding and seeing but not perceiving because they're like Pilate in the moment. They don't, they, they, they don't have a category for the magnificence of what it is that's actually happening. And so, Lord, we have a measure of hindsight because we live after the resurrection with your word given to us to understand a bit more (laughs) what was happening. And yet we see through a glass darkly. But you don't. And so help us to have your your vision. Um, Help us to see through through the lenses of, of truth. Help us to have a deeper sense of wonder as we anticipate uh, the birth of Christ and celebrate the birth of Christ during this Advent season. Uh, Lord, we thank you that the sweeping, comprehensive nature of the restoration that you bring is the kind where surely if the leopard lies down with the young goat and if the lion eats straw like the ox, then things like pandemics and social distancing and economies and elections uh, will have no bearing and impact on our joy, our eternal and lasting joy. And so we thank you for that. Uh, And we pray this in your matchless name, Lord Jesus. Amen. (laughs)